Good morning. You all right? Happy Sunday to you. Uh, Man, we got a lot to do today. So let's grab your Bible. Let's get to it. Revelation chapter 17 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new to Citadel Square, we love the Bible here. We love teaching the Bible, listening to God's word to us as a church. Uh, There should be a Bible around you somewhere, one of the pew backs or if you're up on the balcony, one of the chairs there. Go ahead and grab one of those and find your way to Revelation chapter 17, all the way on the right. Revelation 17, let's look at this here together. I'll tell you where we've been. We finished looking at the bold judgments where the final wrath of God was poured out on the earth. And uh, at the end of Revelation chapter 16, we have the, the minutes before Jesus shows up in Revelation 19. And what you have in this and really these two chapters, Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation Revelation chapter 18, is yet another biographical section. It it shows you, uh, while last week we looked at one of the bold judgments getting poured out upon the kingdom of the beast and upon his throne, where the, the kingdom of the beast had the lights turned off in his kingdom, and then the false prophets went out to gather the the kings of the world for the great day of the uh, battle of Armageddon. Uh, What you have here in 17 and 18 is a look at that kingdom. You remember last week we said that uh, God remembered Babylon. That he, he, when God, it talks of God remembering, it's not that God forgets in the Bible. You know that, right? Uh, It's that God acts in accordance with his nature. So when we are remembered, we're thankful because God acts according to his merciful kindness and forgiveness toward us in Jesus Christ. When Babylon is remembered, it's a bad day. Okay? Now, what we're going to see over these next two weeks is sort of a, uh, a microscope looking down on what exactly has been happening with the kingdom of Babylon. We call this message politics and religion because what I wanted to do is create a really radioactive sermon. Uh, which is what you're going to see here today. Uh, There's lots of conversation in our culture and in many places and many times about world systems. And what I love about the Word of God is that the Word of God gives you categories by which you are able to see and interpret the times. You with me? That when I step into a culture... What the Word of God does, the Word of God transcends culture for us to be able to give names and handles to what exactly is going on in that culture and in that time. And what you're going to have here in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 are two big ideas. You're going to see the kingdom of Babylon as represented, one, the spiritual component to it, and two, the commercial component to it. Okay, this week, the spiritual component of the kingdom of the beast and the Antichrist in Revelation 17, the commercial component to it in Revelation 18, we'll look at next week, but all of that is under this idea of the Babylon kingdom of the Antichrist in the last days. Now, this text is great uh, because it's going to highlight two very particular systemic ways of thinking. When you think about world systems, the Bible pulls world systems together in the last days, and it looks at the political world system, and it looks at the religious world system. Now, in the kingdom of the Antichrist in the last days, those two are going to become one, which we'll see in this passage here today. But for us, in the time and culture in which we live, religion has somewhat of a restraining force on the politics of the day. They're they're doing this dance where there's political powers at play, but there's also religious world leaders who are pushing ethics against political nations and political powers and political kings. And there's this this push and pull that's going on. 
until you get to Revelation chapter 17. And in Revelation chapter 17, you're going to see the dynamic interplay between political kings and kingdoms and religious leaders come together into perhaps the most diabolical, demonic, horrific machine that mankind has ever created. The question in political thought and political systems is very, very simple. The main question you have is who rules the ruler, right? That no matter what amount of political power is at play, the question that you and I have to ask and answer is who controls the ruler? What is the theological framework and the mindset and the conviction and ethics and values and morality that that ruler brings into his position? And what you're going to see here in Revelation chapter 17 is when it all goes bad. What do you think is going to happen? when you have complete world religious unity, complete political unity, and complete commercial unity? Do you think it's all going to be peaceful? What's your, I mean, what's your gut thought? Because what you have in this text is unity. But what you also have in this text is persecution, and martyrdom, and oppression, and violence and hatred of God, his Christ, and his people. You see a kingdom fully devoted to the purposes of Satan. What is that kingdom going to look like? How do we describe it? How do we understand it? And what God gives us, you know, one-eighth of the material in this book, more than 50 verses, are devoted to the destruction of this last world kingdom. It's as if God says, do you want to see really what man can do? And this kingdom is going to be called Babylon. Now, Babylon began all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. And what did God do in Genesis chapter 11? He dispersed mankind over the face of the earth. He confused their languages because he recognized mankind unified against God. There's nothing they cannot accomplish. What precipitated the flood in Genesis chapter 6 is that the thoughts of mankind's heart were only wicked all the time. What happens at the end of one of the most broken books in your Bible in the book of Judges, the end of the book of Judges says there was no king in Israel and every man did what is right in his own eyes. What happens when you let man decide what he wants to do? And in this book, they unify under a single world leader who's empowered by Satan, who's got a hype man called the false prophet, and they exert their power over all the earth. It is a dark day. Now, what I want you to see in this text is really, really important because you and I live in a time and a place where there are cultural teachings, right? Teachings and winds of doctrine that are, that are out there in our day and in our time. And one of the things that happens when we talk about cultural movements and false preaching and false teaching that seeks to uh, propose a worldview that is anti-God and anti-Christian, anti-Yahweh, what it does is it tries to get you focused on the details it tries to back you into a corner and control language in such a way that it makes you uh, believe the particulars down here about their worldview, but it can't answer the worldview questions that are up top and up high. 
And what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 17 is so encouraging. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. You will walk out today feeling like your lungs are full of praise and glory to God in one of the darkest chapters in your Bible. Do you know that? You are going to see God give you some like big, nasty, 550-pound silverback gorilla kind of theology. It, it, God is going to give you theology that you can die with. Do you want that? Do you want to lay on your hospital bed and have theology as the foundation of your life that will take you into eternity? It's in this text. You will see examples and promises and the power of the Lamb that comes face to face with the kingdom of the Antichrist. And you will watch the lamb conquer and win. And what you will do today is gain a greater understanding of the winds and the deception and the false teaching that are at work in our culture. Now, I was either gonna start with Ephesians 6 or end with Ephesians 6. I think I'm gonna end with Ephesians 6. So this is behind the music, just for a second. But keep Ephesians 6 in your mind because where we're going to land today is Ephesians 6 and you're going to walk out of here seeing things perhaps that, uh, seeing things more clearly than perhaps uh, you've seen them before. That's what Revelation 17 will do for you. All right? Let's pray together and ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, we come to a text that is uh, dynamic and scary and descriptive and we come as people desiring to know you desiring to know your will, to gain a sense of spiritual understanding that can carry us through our days that out there, Father, right now it seems dark. Times are uncertain and people are scared and we bring discouragement into this place and uncertainty as to what you're doing. And Father, I pray today that you would give us strength in our hearts, that you would deepen us, that we would gain footing in a time where it feels like uh, our feet are slipping in the sand that you would place our feet on the rock here today. That we'd see things about you today, that we gain a greater appreciation of your power and your strength and your plans and your word and all of those things that we need to live wisely in this day and age. And Father, thank you so much for Revelation 17. Thank you for this text that shows us something about you that is undeniable that gives us great confidence and, and peace and gives us strength to be able to face our Monday morning tomorrow. So Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, amen. Revelation 17, verse one. Now, uh, politics and religion, not, you know, dinner party, content. Uh, I get it. Uh, but you've got to see these categories in Revelation chapter 17 for you to understand really what's going on. Uh, the revelation is the, um, the Greek word is the apokalypto, the apocalypse, right? And it means the, to pull the curtains back, to pull the covers back for you and I to see. You ever feel like you watch the news and you just have no idea what's going on? You read your, the blogs and you go, I have no idea what is happening and who's right and who's wrong and what I'm supposed to be seeing. And Revelation isn't like that. Revelation is not meant to leave you in the dark. Revelation is meant for you to read, to understand, and to obey. Remember those people at the beginning of Revelation 1? They will be blessed. 
So you're meant to see it and to understand it and to put it to work. So when you look at Revelation chapter 17, you should walk out of here understanding some things about your culture and your day and political powers and religious leaders and false teaching and all of that, you should be able to see clearly. You put on the spectacles of the word of God to be able to dial in that spiritual 2020. That's what Revelation 17 does for us. So look at uh, 17.1. Now, the, the bowls have fallen. We're going to go back in time, as it were, right about to the middle of the tribulation. And we're going to take a look at why these bowls fall. What this kingdom exactly is that God judges on earth. Look at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, moments of judgment in the scriptures are always meant to carry a moral. They're, they're explanatory. When you look at individuals in the New Testament, the Ananias and Sapphira of the New Testament church who lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck down. When you look at Herod in the New Testament, who everybody around him says, the voice of a God and not man. He is struck down and eaten by worms, which is always an indicator that you're doing something wrong before God. When you move into your Old Testament and you look at events like Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment of the flood and Jericho falling and Korah's rebellion, you are meant to look at moments of God's precise judgment and to understand something about the, sin, the utter sinfulness of sin, the utter righteousness and holiness of God, that he has the right to call sin to account and to judge it. Amen? That God has that right. So John now watches the bowl judgments fall and, and all of heaven and earth and the martyrs go, God is just and God is true. And now this angel takes John to the side and says, John, let me show you this judgment. Let me show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. Now, he, John's going to have this vision of this prostitute and a scarlet beast and many waters and all that. And it's going to be explained all the way through, very simply, through Revelation chapter 17. And if you thought you needed a better topic to talk about at dinner parties beyond religion and politics, throw prostitution in there, and boy, you've got a trifecta of just great conversation that you can have tonight when you meet with people. And both of you got that. The other rest of you are like, can we say that word in church? It's in the text. I just, hey, I don't write it. <clears throat> So here's this angel. This angel is going to bring uh, explanation alongside judgment. Now, we saw the judgment last week, right? Blood everywhere, everything. People have boils. It's all skin cancer and boils and gross and all, all that. And now the angel is going to show it to us. Look at verse 2. Now, when he talks about this great prostitute, he's going to show you two particular relationships, two connections between this prostitute and two groups of people. Look at verse 2. He says, here's this great prostitute who's seated on many waters, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Now, uh, because it's a vision and because it's a corporate vision, the idea of sexual immorality really throughout the entire book of Revelation and even spots in the New Testament outside of this book have to do with believing in false teaching of the day. That when you looked at the, the two churches back in... Um, in the beginning of our book, in Pergamum and Thyatira, they both, ha both had false teaching that led to sexual immorality. So that the false teaching of the day is always connected to man's sinfulness 
Anytime that you can excuse and remove morality from the equation and purity and holiness from the equation and and align religion that approves of wickedness under the uh, guise of political power and political approval, you've got a mechanism to create oppression. I'm going to say that again so you, you don't miss it, that false teaching aligned with political powers of the day is a machine and a mechanism for oppression, which is all of what you're going to see here. So these kings have a compelling desire to align themselves with this great prostitute. So that this false teaching of the day, whatever it is and whatever is going on in this time, is incredibly seductive. It has this powerful draw that all of the kings of the world start to unite with. Now, when you look at this euphemism, this picture between a great prostitute and many kings, you have a contrast, don't you, in the scriptures? When Paul writes to the New Testament church, what is the New Testament church called in the, in, uh, in the Bible? He's called a what? He's called a bride. She's called a bride. And Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, says, I betrothed you to one husband. That the bride in Ephesians 5 is washed clean in her holiness from any spot and wrinkle or any such thing. So the idea of sexual immorality in the context here is that there is a kind of false teaching all throughout the world that is incredibly attractive, incredibly seductive, and, is, and comes with a draw to political leaders. But those who follow Christ, the singular husband, are now pure in their relationship with God through what Jesus has done for the New Testament church. You're about to see the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here in this picture, you have these kings of the earth committing sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So not only is is her teaching seductive and powerful and drawing individuals in, but it's also inebriating. It's a picture, now, it's a picture of being under the influence and control of this wine. That's the idea with, with drunkenness in the scriptures, that you are not, you are no longer in control. Something else is speaking for you. There is another spirit that is in control over these earth dwellers at the time. And it's this false teaching that is happening during the reign and the beginning of the unification of all of mankind. Now this is, again, the same thing that happened back in Genesis chapter 11. There's a unification of man. Man says in Genesis 11, let us not be dispersed over the face of the earth, but let's come together, let's build a kingdom and a tower and a name. And that what mankind can do without God is complete, is create complete unity under the anti-God, anti-Yahweh conviction. Now, this is what John sees. Here's here's what the angel says. Here's what you're about to see. Now, this description shows up in verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've had a consistent movement in this book around defining who the beast is. You remember who the beast is? Keep your finger in 17. If you've just joined us and you haven't been in our Revelation series, let me show you this. Go back to Revelation 13 with me. Turn from 17 back to 13. 
These beasts are described as world powers. Back in Daniel chapter 7, this beast is described as an individual who's the representative of this last day's kingdom in Revelation 13. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Sound familiar? Same beast in 17. With ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Okay, now come back to 17. Here's what this vision uh, is described as in verse 3. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, the idea of the woman sitting on the beast is that the beast supports the woman. The beast has influence over, or I'm sorry, the woman has influence over the beast, and the beast is supporting her agenda of false teaching now being pervasive all over the planet in this one world government, one world religion. You with me so far? You're not sure. That's okay. Move your head in any direction if you've been in this church before. Thank you. Okay, good. Amen. Let's look at what the woman looks like. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. What's that tell you? She's wealthy. She's adorned with the highest quality fabrics. Scarlet has to do with both royalty and uh, glory. Purple is the same way. There's a kind of regal royalty to this woman, incredibly impressive, incredibly good looking, incredibly rich and wealthy. She's a good individual to align yourself with and to follow after according to these kings. She's adorned with gold and pearl and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So she's wealthy, she's powerful, she's in control, she's savvy, she's attractive, and she's got a massive amount of influence over these kings. In the book of uh, Jeremiah, there's two places uh, in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. At the end of Jeremiah's writings, Jeremiah talks about the destruction of kingdoms that had come against the nation of Israel at the time. He talks about Moab and Ammon and Philistia and uh, all of these kingdoms at the time that had oppressed and persecuted Israel. Keep your finger here in Revelation 17 and turn back to Jeremiah 51 right toward the end of the book, toward the middle of your Bible, Jeremiah 51. Uh, and one of the reasons that uh, commentators look at Isaiah, places like Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 is they look forward to a time when the kingdom of Babylon will one day be ultimately and finally destroyed. Now, the kingdom of Babylon is not in, um, in control right now, but at one time under Nebuchadnezzar, it was one of the most uh, one of the foremost world powers in terms of its ability to control and have authority over massive amounts of the earth. In fact, if you uh, remember the name Saddam Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein read about Nebuchadnezzar and was so captured with his ability to unite kingdoms under his name that Saddam Hussein began to rebuild Babylon. You can go out and you can read about it. It didn't get finished because uh, he ended badly. But uh, he had in his heart to unite the, the dream of a resurrected and restored Babylon. 
just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Now look at Jeremiah 51 with me if you're there. You there? 51.6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering to her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all of the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. So what is the picture here in Jeremiah 51 but that God has given authority into the hand of Babylon to to completely overwhelm the world. To now give uh, authority, as it were, into this Babylonian king's regime to allow him great power and great authority at the time. Now flip back to Revelation 17 with me. God uses Babylon, the world power in Jeremiah's day, to influence and control a massive empire. When you hear the word great Babylon, it comes, it's coined by Nebuchadnezzar himself, where he walks among his kingdom and says, is this not great Babylon, which I have created because of my glory and my name? He's this premier king with massive amounts of authority and power that one day will be replicated in Revelation 17. Now look at verse 5, 17 verse 5, back in Revelation. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great. There it is, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Which means here's this image that John is getting. The mother of all prostitutes means that from this idea, Babylon began in Genesis chapter 11 and out of it came an anti-God, anti-Christian mindset that now flows throughout the ages. That on the other side of the worldwide flood and the judgment, you have man coming together now to be the place where false teaching, false worship, and anti-God setting up our own religions and our own worldviews apart from the one true God, Yahweh. It flows from Babylon. And ultimately, it shows up here again in Revelation 17. It's as if false teaching holds your Bible together. You see that? that it holds with the false teaching of Genesis 11 goes all the way through to Revelation chapter 17 as demonstrating and pulling the covers back that false teaching is not just a different opinion about God. It is an anti-God, anti-Christian worldview that seeks total uh, uh, influence, domination, and control of everybody on the planet. Don't miss that, please. Don't miss that false teaching is not just, it's not a comparative religions class where we go, we've got what the Christian thinks and we've got what the, uh, the Muslim thinks and we've got what the Hindu thinks and we've got what the fill in the blank all the way down. But that false teaching at its seedling core seeks world domination and control. That's the picture you have here. It, ha- it seeks worldwide influence and power. So here's this woman seated on this beast that has blasphemous names that represent all of the kingdoms of the world that have set themselves up against God and his Christ. And now what the angel is about to do is to show you one more problem. It's got worldwide influence, it's got worldwide control, and it's aligned with the political powers of the day. Look at verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. She has an insatiable lust to crush the Christians. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There's your first mention of him in this text. Isn't that interesting? 
And he's mentioned in the context of martyrdom. So here's your question. If, if you have felt up to this point in our message that this seems a little fantastic, this seems like an image that it's hard to get my mind around, what I want to show you throughout the remainder of our time together in this chapter is who God is and what he does. Because if you step into our culture at any time, if you step into conversations about worldview, you are going to need to be armed with the truth of who God is and what he is like. What is it that will allow you to die well? What kind of theology has to be in your mind and heart to allow you to stand in a wicked day and perhaps to lose your life for the truth of what you believe? What are the essentials of that reality? And God in his kindness in this chapter gives you such encouragement, such truth to build your life on that it's, it's the theology that you can get martyred by. And it's right here. It begins with the opposition between you and your culture of the day. Do you believe, like John says in 1 John chapter 5, that the whole, we are from God and we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? Does that capture your mind at all? Because at this point in your Bible, the entire world, the entire commercial, political, and religious system is set up against the Christian. They're coming for you. And this woman is drunk on the blood of the saints. So let's see what God demonstrates, what God shows us in a text like this. Now, John is, is just, he's just overwhelmed, isn't he? I look at this, and I look at this woman, a scarlet beast, and blaspheming, and horns, and all of this, and she's arrayed beautifully, and she's seductive, and attractive, and influential, and I am, I'm overwhelmed. He marvels at this vision that he receives, and I love that the angel goes, hey, psst, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, why do you marvel? You know that spot when uh, the disciples watch Jesus ascend into heaven and the angels show up and they go, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the heavens? This Jesus will return the very same way that he left. And then the church starts, boom. It, it, now this is a fantastic vision. It's a marvelous vision. It's a captivating vision. But the angel tries to center John. Why are you marveling? Why are you looking? And why are you so uh, impressed and amazed at the fact that the covers have been pulled back and you see political and religious Babylon aligned together with the goal of destroying God's saints? You ever need that? You ever look at the culture of your day and what you believe about Jesus and not sure what's happening and in the political realm and all that and you go, I just feel overwhelmed. I feel like it's too much for me to think of and too much for me to understand and I love that this angel goes, why do you marvel? I'm gonna explain it to you. See, we need a heavenly perspective. You need a heavenly perspective on our culture and on our day and on politics and on religion and all of that. You need God to speak. You are so blinded and marveling at the wrong kind of things. I am marveling at the wrong kind of things. And what I need is an angel next to me go, why do you marvel? I will explain to you exactly what's going on. This is why a Christian can move through a culture and see things rightly 
He can identify and she can identify deception and false teaching and worldview and apologetics issues because you have a heavenly perspective of the word of God. Do you have that? Or is your perspective merely shaped by what you read on the news? Are you able to take your Bible and what you see on the news and marry the two and understand really what's at stake? Because this angel is about to give you what's at stake. This angel is about to show you what is going on in politics and religion that you would understand the most important things to build your life on. Why do you marvel? Verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, that happens in Revelation chapter 13. The beast who was and is not and is about to arise. It's the exact, it, this phrase is used twice here in this verse. Do you see it? He's about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, if you go back to Revelation 13, this is the key miracle that the Antichrist accomplishes. The key miracle that the Antichrist accomplishes is that, is that he has a mortal wound that seems to be healed. He goes through a death and resurrection that is the foundation of his kingdom. It's a deceptive death and resurrection. And it happens in Revelation 13. Revelation 12, we saw the historical um, adversary of God's people. Revelation 13, we see the dragon thrown down from heaven, imbuing with his power and his authority and his throne, the Antichrist, who looks like he goes through a false resurrection. And this is the key miracle as he seeks to be the anti-Christ. You know what anti is? Anti is a, is a Greek prefix that doesn't mean against. It means in the place of. He seeks to take Jesus out of the way and step in and go, here I am. I have gone through a death and a resurrection and I am worthy of your glory, your worship, your honor, and your praise. But he deceives who in the, in the text? He deceives the dweller on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. These anti-God systems exist in virtually every corner of our society. An anti-God worldview with man at the center exists in families, in economics, in politics, in education, all over the place in our world. Mankind, when he gets together in the Bible, does not do well. You know that? It doesn't go good. He creates cities, which become a concentration of mankind's anti-God convictions. But in the midst of this text, here's the first truth that I think you can build your life on. What happens when culture is railing against the Christian, against God and his Christ, and people are being deceived into following after the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon of our day. The great hope for you, the great hope for me, is right in the middle of this verse, is that my name has been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Is that you? Do you know that Jesus knows your name, that there's a heavenly register where he, he writes you in. 
And he knows you personally, that whatever you are facing in the darkest time in human history, all the way back to tomorrow on Monday morning, that Jesus knows where you are. He knows what you're going through, and he calls you by name. Isn't that good news? That doesn't matter what's happening in politics and world religion and false teaching of the day. If I come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, I enter into a kind of intimacy in my relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. You know, I had a, I had a woman in our church this week who called me and was facing losing her job because of the convictions that she held that were biblical convictions. And we got on the phone and we talked about it. I said, you are facing the crossroads between your culture and your convictions. Hold the line. And she lost her job. Can that happen? Can there be convictions that you hold to, that you believe in because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, where you say this far and no further, I don't move. She held to him, she lost her job. That's fine. Jesus knows right where she is. Jesus knows what she's going through and Jesus will provide and protect her. I believe that. You believe that? I believe that'll happen. Because he knows her by name. Look at verse nine. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Now we saw that before with the mark of the beast. You remember that? Revelation 13 and 17 are comparable texts. They help you balance out and understand what's happening in this world kingdom. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They're also seven kings. Now watch this. Five of whom has fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. Now use your math. Five plus one plus one is? You got it. Man, that's good. That's good. Biblical exegesis scholars right here. Seven mountains. Now mountains in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, seven through nine, is meant to be pictures of world kingdoms and world powers. Five have fallen. Here's what they probably are. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greeks. Which one is during John's day? Rome. Which one is yet to come? This final kingdom. You with me? I'm going to do it again. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greeks, five that were, one that is, Rome, one that is to come. God sees this successive world powers. If you go back and you look at the uh, kings of the day, the kings of the day and the world powers have a real problem when they come face to face with God. Nebuchadnezzar eats grass like an ox. Darius the Mede takes all of the, the stuff out of the, um, out of the temple of God and starts drinking out of all the implements and a hand starts writing on the wall and says, you've been measured in the weight in the something and found wanting. You don't measure up. And that night, his kingdom is taken. God has no problem setting up kingdoms, using them for his purposes, bringing them to destruction. And he does it in one verse. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The last kingdom on earth that's united under the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon... Satan lasts only about seven years. Now watch this. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Now this is tricky, but in the last seven years, you have three and a half and three and a half that look like five and five. I can't do three and a half. 
Three and a half, three and a half. And it's broken up right in the half, in half by a very important event. It's the pseudo-false resurrection of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist in Revelation 13 reigns for 42 months, which is how long? Three and a half. And this individual that rises to power is an eighth, but he's part of the seven. He's part of the worldwide anti-God, anti-Christian and his people movement. You with me so far? Keep going. Move your head. Don't matter. I'm going to keep going. You can go back and read it later. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Verse 12, the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who've not yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Antichrist is going to rise to power. He's going to have a posse of kings with him, 10 different kings who are now going to align themselves with this false resurrected individual who looks like the anti, who is the Antichrist. And they're going to leverage their power and authority next to the Antichrist. Verse 13, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. How is the beast going to take control? He's going to have a 10 nation power from which he rules and he reigns because everybody's going to hand their authority to this beast because his res false resurrection gives him credibility in the eyes of these kings. This is a lot, isn't it? Remember our first big biblical truth. What is it? My name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's your second one, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Do you remember um, the question that was asked back in Revelation 13, where the world looked at the beast and they said, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You know what the, the answer to that question is? Revelation 17, 14. You believe that? That they go to make war against the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, it says, out of his mouth comes a sword, and with it, he judges and makes war. Who do you think wins? Who are you gonna bet on? I'm gonna bet on the lamb. See, this is, this is important for you. You need to know, this is one of my great concerns for you as a church. I'm gonna get in your business just for a minute. Okay, you ready? Put on your seatbelt. Get your bike helmet on. One of my great concerns for you as a Christian and for us as a church is that we are just too dang strong. That we believe in ourselves too much. That for so many of us, we think that God now is approving the strength that we have to accomplish the ambitions that we have for our life. And what I see in Revelation chapter 17 is God brings his people to the point of martyrdom so that he would prove that the one who is called and chosen and faithful has put his hope in not loving his life here, but his hope alone in the Lamb. There are some battles in this life that you will not win that you will come to the end of yourself and you will throw yourself on the strength of God. And in the very last days when his people are being martyred and they're putting their hope and their trust in the lamb and they're losing their lives, they are actually winning. They're actually conquering. 
And nothing can take that away. You know, Paul, when Paul talks about receiving this, um, the visions that he has in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, these visions are so great, I can't even talk about them. But to keep me from being conceited, God sent me a messenger to humble me and to make me pray and to make me weak, to come to the end of myself. And three times, Paul says, I pleaded that God would take it away from me. And what Paul has is the truth of God and unanswered prayer. And God says, no, I won't take it away. Because you know what he says? My power is made perfect when? In weakness. I will not take it away so that I can show you, Paul, I'm strong enough for this. I hate this about ministry. It is the worst. Because I have too much faith in myself and my own abilities, my own strength, my own insight, my own educational strength, all of those things. And often, 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 I am brought to the point of utter and complete weakness and dependence alone on some individual who has risen from the dead, who I am putting my faith in, and in him is the only way that I'm going to conquer and win. And the thing that scares me about our church now is that we are just too dang successful that we are too educated we, to pray, to come to, a, to times in our life where God has to remove the supports and show us just how dependent we are and then to demonstrate for us how glorious and strong that he is. That is the agenda of the Christian life. And I do not like signing up for that curriculum. Amen? I don't like that. I don't like being seen as weak and ineffective and insufficient and unable to accomplish the thing that I think I ought to accomplish in Jesus' name. And as the martyrs show up here, we are reminded not just that my name is known, but that one day Jesus will conquer every single opposition to his name. Verse 17. 15, I'm sorry. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and the people are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. How much influence does this woman have over the earth? Everywhere. Complete control religiously all over the entire planet. Can you imagine one world religion? It shows up here. Verse 16, the 10 horns that you saw now, this is important. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Remember what Jesus said, a kingdom divided itself cannot stand, right? So in the midst of this woman and this beast, in the end days, the first three and a half years, they work together. There's this alignment between one world religion and one, world, one political world power. But when you get to the halfway point and the Antichrist goes through his false resurrection, now politics turns on religion. We will have no more of this coexistence because now who must you worship? You must worship the Antichrist. We aren't going to coexist anymore. These 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Politics hates religion because it loves and craves power. It wants nothing to do with ethics and morality and worship. It wants to subjugate it and destroy it. 
and ultimately align under the Antichrist. Now, here's your next two, verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Isn't that good? Man, isn't that good? What's good, Steve? I'm not paying attention. You know how amazing that is? God has put it into the evil ten kings to destroy the prostitute, which means who's still in charge? God is still in charge. He puts an idea in their mind to destroy this world, one world religion. God pulls a joke on the one world religion of the day and he starts to dismantle it piece by piece by piece. God has put it into their hearts to carry out whose purpose? His purpose by by being one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. He says, unity is great. You want to rise up and get unified against me? I'm going to take apart your kingdom by turning you on each other. You know how often that happens in the Old Testament? Remember Jonathan going up against the Philistines? He kills people in about an acre with him and his armor bearer, and the Philistines start killing themselves. They start turning on each other, and God takes this kingdom, and he starts to turn the pieces against one another so that there's disunity and a fractured kind of fighting. Whose purposes are in charge in our culture today? God's. Whose purposes are in charge in Afghanistan today? God's. God can take evil and work it against itself like that. No problem whatsoever. It looks crazy. It does. You need to have the covers pulled back and understand that God has still not abandoned his post and God is still in control accomplishing all that he desires. Nothing is outside of God's sovereignty and God's control. Now watch this. There's one more. You've got your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Number two, you've got a king who conquers Even though you die, even though you lose the battle, you've got a king against whom no opposition can crush him. Number three, you've got God's purposes who are happening just according to his plans and his desires. And number four, look at the end of the verse. What do you got? Until the words of God are fulfilled. That's good. It's not just his purposes until his very word is fulfilled. What controls our time on earth? What controls the seasons and the ebb and flow of our lives during our time as we walk with him in our lives and in our families and our seasons, our vocations? The fulfillment of God's word. This is why the Christian has an, an understanding about their life. You ever go through times in life where you're praying for one thing? Right? God, pray that A happens and A doesn't happen. God, I'm praying that A happens. A doesn't happen. And then after about six months or so of you being frustrated and angry in this conversation with God, you find out that God is really doing B. You ever do that? That happened, I will, I will admit that was me. And then I ask a very astute question where I say, God must be doing something other than what I'm praying for right now. And it takes me months of frustration with God to get to the point where I go, oh God, you've got another plan. You've got something else that you're working in my mind and in my heart and in this circumstance, in this situation with my job and my family and my workplace, my friends, my kids, whatever it is. And I have to move in my relationship with God to a place of trusting God's purposes and timing in my lives and aligning my life to the purposes that God has, to the word that God wants to fulfill in my life. This is the great joy of a Christian. Not only do we have a perspective, but we have an intimate walk with God where we discover now exactly what God is doing. 
Verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So you want to know how to apply this? Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Here's life in the church right now, today, Monday morning. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll close with this. If our uh, Tim, if you and the band want to come on up here. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Don't bring your strength to God. Bring your weakness and you'll be all right. Bring your inability and you'll be all right. Because he has promised to be strong on our behalf. He has promised to fight the battle for us, right? Be strong in this in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What, do you, what, what, is, what is the ambition of the devil in your life? It's the schemes. It's to get you to disbelieve that God is faithful, that he loves you, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that Jesus is actually good, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is a conqueror, that he has washed you and sanctified you, that all none of his purposes will fail and he rules and governs according to his word. And what you and I, what we struggle with is forgetting those things, right? So in whatever struggle you have right now, if you come back to the fact that you are loved, that Jesus is strong, that he's in control, and he loves you and gives you his word, you'd be all right. That'll be $150. (laughs) Counselors, there you go. Those are foundational elements in the life of the Christian, that God does not waste our moments in our lives. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know what the greatest temptation is for the Christian? Is to wrestle against flesh and blood. It's each other. It's to miss the spiritual component to conversations and relationships and seasons of life. It's not to pull back the covers and understand what's at work that we don't see. But we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We forget that. I forget that. I'm a pastor. I do this for a living. I forget this all the time. That there's the, these spiritual forces that are at work seeking to dissuade and to, to cause me to be discouraged. I talked to you about that last week, of, be, of being discouraged and not being able to see what God is doing and being deceived into, into what the most important thing is. And I need to come back and recognize that our war is not here. Our war is here. That there are some things about your spiritual life that you need to take note of and pay attention to because that's where God is at work. It's not just down here problems. It's up here problems. It's spiritual problems. It's schemes of the devil problems. What would you say the problem is in Revelation chapter 17? I would say it's the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You need to be a pillar around which the wickedness and ungodliness and schemes in life move around you. You need to take serious your spiritual life and understand that the devil is at work as a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. 
He wants nothing less than your despair and discouragement and abandonment of Jesus Christ to prefer your own lusts and preferences. You need to know where the battle is. You need to stand firm in that day and you need to do what the rest of this text says. You need to run to Jesus in whom we have spiritual armor of righteousness and salvation and truth and the readiness that our feet are shod with in the gospel. We have the shield of faith and the sword of truth. We have these things that enable us to understand and pull the covers back and see things about our lives that we wouldn't readily see unless we opened the word of God and had categories to define the struggles that we're facing. See, that's why Revelation 17 is there. Because we forget the one true enemy. We forget what is at stake. We forget the ambition of the devil to have total control And unless you have your Bible open, you won't walk well in this culture, you won't walk well at work, you won't walk well in your career, you won't walk well in any of those areas, but God loves us enough to give us these foundational truths to build our life on. I'm gonna do them again just to remind us that you are loved and known by Jesus Christ. If you don't know that and you are laboring under the assumption that you're trying to prove something for God, can I remind you? Would you talk to a Christian in this room who believes that we come to God alone by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? That he knows me, he's forgiven me, he loves me, he hasn't forgotten me in this season of suffering and difficulty? That number two, no opponent in my life is any match for the lamb. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, isn't it? That in, through him we are more than conquerors. So persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or swords separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Number three, it's his purposes that will stand. So seek his purposes. Ask the question. Like Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, right? Don't run after all these things the Gentiles are running after. You seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And number four, that his word governs our days and our nights. His word governs our seasons that we might understand what God is doing. Father in heaven, we need the comfort and the encouragement that shows up in the weirdest of places here in Revelation chapter 17. Father, would we be people who present to you a heart of wisdom? Would we understand what you are doing in your lives? Would you pull back the covers of the despair and the discouragement and the uncertainty that we so often carry into our Monday morning? And Father, would you be seen and glorified in our lives? Would we run again to the truth that we are known and loved and saved and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? May we be captured by the fact that even though we don't understand your purposes, we can trust your purposes and trust your hand. And would we be uh, captivated by the fact that heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will not. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.